Heavenly Father, thank you for this Good Friday, uh, a day which, of course, uh, is a sad day in some respects when we see the abuse and the mocking and the shame and the torture inflicted on an innocent man, your son, but also a day of great hope as we see the wonderful work that you bring out of that, the salvation of all people who put their trust in Jesus. So as we reflect today on this issue of shame, uh, please help us to see it more clearly in our world, in our lives, but also to understand more clearly the cure for shame. And we ask this for our benefit and for your glory. Amen. Well, if I was to ask you the question, in what ways have you experienced shame, what comes to mind? In what ways have you experienced shame? Well, shame is never far from the constantly turning news cycle. Uh, Australian politics is currently being rocked by numerous revelations of, of course, sexual misconduct and sexism. And those politicians whose misdeeds have been exposed are experiencing shame. But shame is not just something out there at the level of national news, because shame is all around us, and it is part of our experience of life. Uh, we may, may carry a sense of shame linked to regrets from the past, either of things we did or things done to us, the shame of hidden sins. We may have experienced shame as a result of the poor choices of those associated with us, maybe the poor choices of our children or the poor choices of our spouse or our parents, and we experience shame by association. Uh, we may carry a sense of shame due to others having treated us shamefully, uh, treating us as less than human. And we may have experienced shame because we haven't measured up to the standards, maybe of society or others imposed on us. Maybe it's a standard of beauty, a standard of intelligence, or a standard of parental expectations. Shame is all around us, and we can't escape it. But what is the cure? Well, this Easter weekend, uh, we are going to see that shame is all about the Easter story. But we're also going to see that there is a cure for shame. Uh, let me give you a brief roadmap of where we're going to go this morning. Uh, we are going to start by defining shame and its closely related cousin, guilt. Uh, whilst we'll give consideration to both guilt and shame, most of our focus in this series, both today and on Sunday, will be on shame. So we're going to define it first, guilt and shame, and then we're going to secondly explore shame in the Bible. And we're going to start with its entry into the world, and then we're going to fast forward to Jesus, who I'm calling the King of Shame. And then finally, we're going to start to think about the cure. Uh, we'll see today the cure for guilt, and we'll just start to tease out, but we're not going to see fully the cure for shame, because we'll look at that more fully on Sunday. So please come back. So that's where we're going. So firstly then, uh, guilt and shame defined. Let's try and uh, define and distinguish between guilt and shame. For whilst guilt and shame are close companions, guilt and shame are not the same. And to help you just sort of, if you're audiovisual, uh, I've also got some slides which will build up on this. So firstly then, let's think about guilt. 
Uh, guilt says, I did bad. That's the message of, that's the, the voice of guilt. I did bad. So, you see, guilt is an objective fact. I did bad. It is tied to something we've done. It's tied, the Bible would say, to sin. Uh, here is the standard, and I have fallen short of that standard in some way. Now, from the Bible's point of view, uh, guilt is where we fall short of the standard of living according to God's holy law. So, do you see? Guilt is caused by falling short of a standard of behavior. We have either, either done something that we sh shouldn't have done, or we have not done something that we should have done, and we experience guilt. So if you see, guilt then is tied to an action or an inaction, and it's an objective fact. Uh, next slide, please. It's interesting to note, guilt can also be accompanied by feelings of guilt and shame, but guilt is not in itself a feeling. Guilt is an objective fact. Uh, let's move on to shame, because shame is different to guilt. Uh, they're not the same thing. Third slide, please. You see, whereas guilt says, I did bad, shame says, I am bad. Uh, shame is a set of self-beliefs. It's a set of self-beliefs about my identity, my worth and my value, uh, both to God and to others. So you see, shame is not an objective fact. Shame is a subjective set of beliefs about myself and ourselves. I am bad. So you see, shame is this deep sense that I am unacceptable. Uh, next slide, please. Because this sense of unacceptability can be caused by several things. It can be something that we did, but it can also be something that has been done to us. Or even that something associated with us, shame by association. Uh, let me put it another way. We may feel, we may be disgraced because we acted less than human, or we were treated less than human, or we associated ourselves with people who were viewed as less than human, who are nobodies, who had no value. Uh, next slide, please. Let's keep building up this picture. You see, shame can be accompanied by emotions of feeling guilty or ashamed, but at the end of the day, shame is not an emotion. It is a self-belief, a belief about ourselves. I am bad. So, of course, shame is associated with dishonor. Shame is associated with disgrace, with defilement, uh, feeling dirty, unloved, unworthy, rejected, naked, and exposed. So what is the cure to guilt and shame? Well, that's the end point that we're aiming to reach in this two-part Easter sermon series. But of course, the answer will not fully come today. Uh, we'll need to come back on Resurrection Sunday. So uh, we've considered, firstly, the definition of guilt and shame. Let's now look at shame in the Bible. For the Bible is all about shame and its cure. 
You see, shame was not part of God's original perfect society. Uh, Genesis 2.25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. You see, they enjoyed uh, unblemished relational harmony uh, with each other and with God. Uh, They experienced no fear of rejection. They had nothing to hide. Uh, They had no concerns about their bodies. Uh, They were flawless. They had no fear of the critical judgment of others because, because no one else was nasty or condescending. And they had no need to cover up what they had done, because at this stage, they had done nothing wrong. There was no shame in the beginning. Of course, that state of bliss doesn't last for long. Uh, Soon, the spores of shame will be everywhere. With the entry of sin into the equation, the horrors of fear, blame, and shame are now introduced into the human experience of life. Uh, They now feel exposed. They hide, they cover up, and they self-protect and they blame. And thereafter, throughout the unfolding Bible's storyline, the fingerprints of shame are everywhere. But this is not the end. For the goal of God is to restore what was lost. And God's heart is to finally banish shame through cleansing, through love, and through acceptance. And so what we're going to see is that the Bible charts the journey from shame's inception to its solution. Now then, as Old Testament history unfolds, and God progressively reveals more of His salvation plans, a perplexing enigma becomes evident Because, of course, there is this clear promise of a king who will save his people. But through the prophet Isaiah, another figure is introduced. He's referred to as the suffering servant. Isaiah 53 verse 3 says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hid their faces... He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So this figure, uh, referred to as the suffering servant, is associated with shame, with disgrace, with rejection. Here is a thing which had people scratching their heads as the, the Old Testament unfolded. They were saying to themselves, okay, we've got a promise of a glorious king and also a suffering servant, Are they two different people, or are they embodied in one person? Is it describing the same person? Because, of course, throughout the Old Testament era, nobody had heard of a servant king. It was a category that did not exist. And hence, it's no wonder when Jesus comes, he went unrecognized for so long as the true king. Because, of course, now we know the disgraced servants and the glorious king are one and the same. Jesus is the promised servant king, but he is also the king of shame. So let's go on then to look at and to consider Jesus the king of shame. Because we see it worked out in so many ways in his life. 
Uh, firstly, uh, shameful origins. Uh, it's possible that disgrace hounded Jesus from his earliest childhood memories. Uh, you didn't need to have the brains of a professor of mathematics to work out that he had been conceived out of wedlock. Uh, did he and his family have to live with a sense of disgrace within the community? So shameful origins. Secondly, shameful region. Uh, Jesus grew up in a disreputable region of Israel. Uh, it was in the north, and it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, to a Jew, Gentiles was a dirty word. To many Jews, to be associated with Galilee would have been rather embarrassing. And yet Jesus came from Galilee of the Gentiles. That's where he grew up. Uh, thirdly, shameful associations. When Jesus starts his ministry, uh, who does he hang around with? Who does he spend his time with? And who indeed gravitates to him? Uh, is it the respectable people of societies? Uh, is it the well-to-dos? It isn't. It is the nobodies, the disreputable people, the untouchables, those considered less than human. Uh, Jesus identified himself with the shamed and the disgraced folk of his day. Uh, he hung around with those who were considered of no value. Think about it. He hangs around with the prostitutes. Uh, the traitors, uh, the dishonest tax collectors, uh, the diseased, the poor, the crippled, and the outcasts. Uh, Jesus reaches out, of course, to the Samaritan woman. She's an outcast because she's a Samaritan and she's a woman, and she's also led a disreputable life. Uh, Jesus stands with the woman caught in adultery, and Jesus touches the leper. No wonder the reputable smug elite of Jesus' day dubbed him the friend of tax collectors and sinners because Jesus was the king of the shamed. And Jesus brought a healing touch to shamed souls. Jesus accepted those whom everybody else deemed unacceptable. Jesus conveyed a sense of worth and value to those whom all of us had cast off as worthless and valueless. And Jesus challenged and changed their personal belief systems about themselves. He rewired the message of their hearts. They started to think, Hey, I'm not bad. I am loved. So you see, there is hope for the shamed. Then and now, Jesus gives hope to those who suffer rejection, disgrace, and contamination because he is the servant king, the king who has come for those who are maimed by shame. So Jesus experienced shame in many different ways, uh, through his origins, through his place he was brought up, through those he associated with, but fourthly, through the shameful treatment 
at the hands of others. Those who treated Jesus treated Him as less than human. You see, a key cause of shame is often the derision and rejection of others. Uh, when we are treated as unloved and undesirable, when we are abandoned, it's then that we start to question our value and our worth. And as Jesus' ministry continues, He experiences a dramatic snowballing of derision, rejection, and abandonment. Uh, it's interesting that when you read the gospel accounts through, you realize that the feeding of the 5,000 is actually the turning point in Jesus' ministry. It's the point at which the tide of public popularity turns against Jesus. Uh, because at that point, of course, he makes some radical claims about himself. He says, I'm the bread of life, and therefore you must feed on my flesh and blood. And people go, whoa, that's offensive. And we're told from that point on, many who had been following him uh, no longer followed him. Uh, John 6, verse 66. Uh, from this time on, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And from that point onwards, Jesus is left with an ever-diminishingly small set of followers. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, uh, he warns now his 12 disciples of what awaits him there. He prepares them that he will be scorned, he will be rejected, and that is what he tells them to expect. Mark 10, verse 33. We are going to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, which is, of course, the title for the king, the God's promised king, will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Uh, they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. As that first Easter weekend approaches, the shameful treatment of Jesus accelerates to fever pitch. As we know, shame isolates, and that's exactly what happens to Jesus. He is betrayed by one of his inner circle, and he is abandoned by the remainder of his inner circle. At his arrest, what do they do? Do they stand with him? No, they all run away. Uh, Peter and one of the other disciples uh, bring themselves to follow Jesus at a distance. And of course, Peter waits in the courtyard of the house where Jesus is being tried for his life by the Jewish authorities. And as he waits in the courtyard, only hours earlier, this bold Peter had confidently asserted much, with much bravado, Jesus, if all others desert you, I will never I'll stand with you to the end. And yet what happens? Uh, now, in the hour of Jesus' greatest need, he, Peter buckles and he denies knowing Jesus three times. Uh, Luke 22. A servant girl saw Peter uh, seated there in the firelight. Uh, she looked closely at him and said, this man was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. 
A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Uh, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And Peter went outside and he wept bitterly. What do you think Peter experienced in that moment? Deep, bitter shame. He denied his Lord. Peter had shamed Jesus. He had effectively said, my life is more valuable than yours. He had effectively communicated a sense of rejection and worthlessness to Jesus. And the tentacles of shame now wrap themselves around Peter's heart. And he leaves crushed by guilt and shame. And the accounts of what happens next to Jesus describe a numbing barrage of abuse and scorn and violence. In the hastily arranged kangaroo court, his countrymen mock Jesus and they strike him and beat him. In the custody of Pilate, the soldiers mock him with their purple robe and crown of thorns and they flog him to within an inch of his life. The Jews spit on Jesus. Has anybody ever spat in your face? If you have, you know what an offensive thing that is. How humiliating. And indeed, as the situation unfolds, everybody is spitting on Jesus. Uh, The fickle crowd choose to release Barabbas, a convicted murderer, over Jesus. The crowd is saying to us, Jesus, you are worthless. You are of no value. And then, when we get to Golgotha, the scene is dense with abuse. The festival of shame continues. Crucifixion was deliberately designed to dehumanize the victim. The goal of crucifixion was not just death, but also dishonor. It was intentionally a shameful public event. Can you imagine the humiliation and indignity felt by Jesus as he was exposed naked on the cross before that baying crowd? And the people hurl their insults at him. And the chief priests mock him. And even the soldiers crucified, sorry, even the robbers crucified with him heap insults on him. And so Jesus dies amidst a tsunami of abuse and shame. So finally then, and fourthly, the cure for guilt and shame. What is the cure? Let's think about guilt. Guilt. 
on the cross, Christ bears the guilt for all that we have done that is bad. And he does so in our place as a substitute. 2 Corinthians 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, what is the cure for guilt? Uh, the next slide, please, Rod. The cure for guilt is forgiveness. And when we come to faith, to Christ in faith, Christ utters those liberating words to our hearts. Your sins are forgiven. You are free. The price is paid. Hallelujah. Uh, it's what theologians refer to as the doctrine of justification. It's this idea that through forgiveness, we are declared righteous in God's sight. The slate is now wiped clean. We are forgiven. The conscience is clear. And it's only possible through Christ's death. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says this. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. So, we've briefly considered uh, the cure for guilt. Let us start to consider the cure for shame. We're not going to fully see the answer this morning. Uh, we will work further with this on Sunday. But let's make a start. Uh, we have seen this morning that Christ is the shamed servant king, the one who bears shame on our behalf. If you recall earlier, we saw that shame may be caused in three ways. Here's the slide again, just to remind you. I've highlighted it in yellow. Oh, I haven't. Anyway, it's the third category down there. Shame is caused, sometimes shame through something shameful we did, or secondly, something shameful done to us, or thirdly, being associated with the shamed. Let's think about each of those in relation to Christ. Well, Christ never did the first. He never did anything shameful. He was and is the sinless Son of God, and He lived a perfect life on earth. However, He experienced shame through the second and the third, uh, shameful, through shameful things done to Him and His association with the shamed. And this means that his experience of shame differed from ours in one very fundamental way. Jesus never experienced shame as a negative belief system about himself. At no point did he say, I am bad. At no point did his heart resonate with that belief. Even in his cry, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is even then suffering as a substitute in place of you and me. So you see, his beliefs about his identity, his worth, and his value never wavered. He was the perfect, loved Son of God, and he was secure in his Father's approval. 
So at no point did he believe that he was bad. And in that, we start to get hints at the cure for our shame. But we're going to pick up on that on Sunday. So, Jesus willingly came to face that shame for you and for me. And as we feel the weight of the shame He experienced, we are also touched by His love for us. As we have reflected this morning on that awful shame borne by Jesus, we think He did that for me and for you. And so our hearts say, thank you, Jesus, that incredible love. I'm going to pray for us now, and then we'll open up to questions and comments. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending the glorious King, who is also the shamed, suffering servant. Uh, They are one and the same. Uh, Thank you that he bore such shame for us as our substitute. And thank you that he has given us solution for our guilt and our shame. And as we reflect on this wonderful solution, both today and on Resurrection Sunday, help us, we pray, uh, to apply that cure to our hearts through trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins and thereafter having a conscience that is cleansed from all guilt and having a belief about ourselves that we can be cured from shame. So please, Heavenly Father, uh, take us on that wonderful journey and take us deeper into all the wonders that Christ's crucifixion and resurrection uh, bring to us, we pray. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to...